Thank you, James, for reading that passage. It's uh, almost like a, a play in itself, right, um, with its vividness. My name is Emily. I'm the pastor of um, UBC Hyde Park Woodlawn, affectionately known as HP Dub. So I bring greetings to your um, Southside siblings. Um, and uh, Chris is in turn bringing, bringing greetings uh, from UBC South Loop to, to that community. And so we're so glad to be reminded once again of the ways that um, we help each other be something bigger than just who we are in this space. Um, I... Uh, uh, want to just say thank you to to Jeff for his uh, his service to this community. He and I had a chance to work together, especially on the anti-racism um, audit, uh, but also uh, in so many other ways. And and it's good to be able to see folks that um, I've been able to walk with at least for a portion of their journey um, uh, as as part of their time here at UBC. Many faces that I know around here, and so grateful for the for the faces I'm familiar with, and and for the faces that are new um, that I have yet to get to know. Um, um, why don't we come together in a word of, prepare, uh, word of prayer to prepare our hearts um, for this morning. God, we are grateful for the sun that shines on the outside and, and your sun, which shines on our inside. Um, and we ask that, uh, that as uh, we lean into what your word has to say to us today, that you would clear away the clutter of our hearts and minds and help us to be present in this space, to, to lean in close to what, you, what it is that you are trying to um, speak to us this morning. So help us to hear, help us to respond with boldness, and help us to come out of this space, space both renewed and challenged, to be your people in a new way in this world that so desperately needs to know what fullness of life, wholeness of life can look like, your vision for us all. We pray all of this with gratitude and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this past summer, um, Sharice and George, a couple at, at High Park Woodlawn, um, traveled to Spain on vacation. And uh, so Sharice sent me some photos. And in the midst of all the kind of seafood and sea fun that they were having, uh, they happened to come across a traveling exhibit uh, for the Auschwitz concentration camp, kind of a buzzkill, right? Um, but now when you are faced with this choice in the middle of your vacation, do I go in or do I pass by, an internal moral dilemma sort of takes place. Right? Sure, I want to have fun on my vacation, but in the shadow of the Holocaust. <laughs> so um, they went in. And it was predictably a powerful and heart-wrenching um, exhibit. And one part in particular kind of really drove home the scale of lives that were decimated. Um, it's an exhibit piece uh, which shows up in many Holocaust exhibits, actually, shoes. Piles upon piles of shoes. Shoes of varying styles and sizes, sandals and loafers, boots and booties, shoes that once housed the feet of a person who lived, who was corralled into a train, who stumbled off the train and then sorted by sex, shoes that were stepped out of when the person wearing them was told to strip down and shower, shoes that were gathered up and dumped into a pile of other shoes making their way to a museum exhibit in Madrid nearly 80 years later. To ponder these shoes, jumbled together, lifeless but representative of life, its mate somewhere in the pile or maybe in another pile in another exhibit. I saw this photo a couple of weeks ago, and when I read our passage for today, imagining this stretch of valley with jumbled together bones, dried and washed out and flaked away. When I pictured this, I remembered this photo 
And I thought of how Ezekiel must have felt, right, walking among these bones in a ghoulish kind of showroom stroll. These bones represent lives cut short, stories never fully told. Walk around, God says. Take it all in. Dismembered, chaotically piled, bleached white and beyond dry, bones everywhere. Now, our passage doesn't say it, but if you dig into Ezekiel, you will find a community that has fallen not once but twice to Babylon, the superpower of the day. Israel had been long overtaken, but Judah had held on tight. They were the last great hope. They resisted, they persisted, and in the end, they were overcome. They had given it their all, but they were utterly defeated, totally deported, and finally scattered across the empire like shoes in a museum exhibit. Every sign and every symbol of Israel's faith and identity had been systematically dismantled. Jerusalem had been devastated. The temple was no more. Leadership had been absorbed. And any possibility that the God they knew could still be around was um, going, that God, and that God was going to intervene was growing thinner and thinner. And any future they could imagine for themselves was disappearing into the mists of assimilation and acculturation. They were a people set apart, quickly coming no more. This is what the Valley of Dry Bones is. Lives cut short, forgotten. Lives laid low in the service to power and might. Lives and life so little regarded that they haven't even been seen to fit, been, been seen fit to keep the bones together. And we are surrounded by death, even if we do our darndest to pretend like we're not, right? There are the things that we know about, like the constant ads for anti-aging creams and Groupons for cryogenic treatments. There are the streams of videos exhibiting police-involved shootings and reportings of mass shootings in schools and nightclubs and movie theaters and concert venues. And there are also the things that we're not really conscious of, right? Like how, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, by the time the average American reaches 16, a person has seen 18,000 murders on television. And it's been estimated that violent death befalls 5% of all primetime characters each week. We are surrounded by death, even if we're not fully aware of it. And so beginning today and over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about death and dying, not because it's fun, right, or really because it's all that attractive. We're doing it because, well, as the series title um, of this new series says, everybody dies. And we're using this imagery in particular for those of you who are not quite as familiar. Um, as a re- it's a reference to um, the, the kind of artwork that comes out of the Mexican Day of the Dead holiday. While much of our culture works overtime to ignore it and avoid and minimize the truth that everybody dies, the Christian tradition is like here for it, actually. It's a tradition that is rich with ways of understanding and holding the holy, mysterious spaces that death resides in. We are not a people afraid of death because we know that death does not have the final word. But even more than that, we understand ourselves to be part of something so much greater because the communion of saints, what what really the Day of the Dead actually kind of uh, symbolizes, the communion of saints, those who journey with us, stretches far beyond the veil that divides life and death. These saints are our people, even if they aren't with us in body. 
And so for Ezekiel to see this valley full of bones so disrespected and lives so disregarded, the pain, the despair, the grief that he feels runs deep. They are, in the Judeo-Christian sense, in hell. Because in spite of what you might have gathered from Looney Tunes or Dante's Inferno, for Christians, hell is not a place where a little man with red horns and hooves is running around poking you with a pitchfork. No, hell, in Hebrew, Sheol, was a place of murkiness and darkness, of separation from God and others. Directionally, it's always described as down, and emotionally, it's always a place of grief, sorrow, and mourning. Experientially, it is where you are silenced, consumed, and surrounded. In the Christian tradition, Jesus talks about hell as a place called Gehenna, which was actually an actual physical place, a city dump. There were constant fires being set to consume the trash and wild dogs that were fighting over scraps of food, gnashing their teeth. So this is where some of that imagery comes from. But when Jesus was talking about hell, because he was all about place and space of, of, of kind of enfleshment of life in this world. So when he was talking about hell, it wasn't really a metaphor place. It was actually a literal place on earth. And the Valley of Dry Bones is hell because it is a trash heap of the empire. The place where the bodies of those generations that have been dumped with no regard to who they were or what they meant. They are the trash outside of the city. They are literally in a pit, as the psalmist often talks about Sheol. History has no use for them. Of course, in our context, when we, when we, when we think, when I think of bodies put in service to empire, not, to an empire not their own, when I think of bodies consumed, abandoned, forgotten, I can't help but think of the countless unmarked graves of enslaved people of African descent and the bodies tossed overboard in the middle passage. But also the discarded Native Americans buried under trails of tears. And I think of imported Chinese and Filipinx entombed under railroads and shipping yards, and poor whites tricked into hatred. Now, earlier this year, I was listening to the Moth Radio Hour, which maybe some of you guys have heard of, a wonderful radio show where people tell stories from their lives around them. Sometimes when I listen to them, I feel like, oh, I've been to church, you know, <laughs> heard some testimonies, right? This time, the theme for the Moth Radio Hour was Squeaky Wheel, and a woman named Annie Tran shared. She said her nickname growing up was Bot, which is a Cantonese word that roughly translates to something like being a busybody or the kind of person who kind of wants, wants to know everything, right? Stick, sticking their nose in everyone's business. It's not exactly a positive uh, nickname. And so she talks about how she spends most of her childhood kind of trying to quell all those curiosities and questions that come up within her. But then one day she's watching television, and there's a PBS documentary about a Chinese-American man named Vincent Chin. Has anyone heard of Vincent Chin? Okay. Um, so <laughs> Vincent Chin grew up in a suburb of Detroit. And one evening, his friends took him out to celebrate his upcoming wedding. This is the early 80s, 1982. And uh, at that time, the big three motor companies were feeling the threat of Japanese automakers <coughs> encroaching on the market. And it was for this reason um, that there were massive layoffs um, that were had recently occurred. And so when Vincent um, and his friends were out celebrating, two laid-off auto workers decided to take their rage out on the nearest Asian they could find. They had baseball bats on them, and Vincent was beaten to death. And the two workers, 
after much uh, rallying, um, were given three years of probation and fined $3,000. The Asian American community was enraged about Vincent's death, and it became this rally cry for stronger legislation around hate crimes, actually. It was because of his death that there became stronger hate crime laws. A successful young immigrant whose life was cut short just before his wedding day with hardly a punishment for his attackers. Instead of family gathering for his wedding the next week, they gathered for his funeral. Valleys full of bones. Does Vincent Chin's life and the lives of those like him, the ones whose names we don't know, does it mean anything? Perhaps not to empire, but to God. Well, for God, they are almost impossibly a community of the beloved. Now, after the tour around Death's Valley, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy. And so he does. And the bones, impossibly mixed up, hopelessly confused, rattle to life. And somehow, in spite of their dryness, in spite of their hollowed-out selves, they find their match. As Annie watched this documentary, her mother walked into the room and said, rather than telling her to turn off the television and do her homework, she stood silently in the doorway and she said, finally, he is family. Again, God says, prophesy, Ezekiel. And so he does. And marrow and ligaments, tendons and musculature emerge from arid, calcified pores. Years later, Annie, the bot, the busybody, went on a fact-finding mission to understand more. She learned not only that Vincent Chin was her cousin, but that he was the reason her family had moved to the U.S. to be a support to his mother, her aunt. And one last time, God says, prophesy, Ezekiel. So he does, and the bodies are covered in skin. They have faces and eyes with eye colors. They're made whole again. And as she reflects on her family's reasonings for coming to the U.S., Annie realizes something. At the time of her parents' emigration, China was enforcing a one-child policy, and she is number two. God bends low and breathes life into these bodies made whole, making them complete. If Vincent Chin had not been killed, Lily Chin may never have been alone in Detroit. My grandmother may never have flown to America to support her. She may never have brought my parents to America and I may never have been born. That knowledge that my life was now precious to me, and I only knew this because I dared to be a bot. <laughs> Curious, asking questions after 10 years of trying to find this answer. And so every single day of my life now, I march on 
just like Lily Chin, my great auntie, did, just like the thousands of people who marched for my cousin Vincent Chin. But that message as a kid, that lesson I learned so well to not speak up, it's always in my head. And I constantly have to stop that voice, that voice that tells me, don't go on that bullhorn, Annie. Don't go to those protests. Don't write those articles. Don't make your boss angry. <laughs> Don't fight for your special education students. And I tell that voice every single day, no, I have to, I have to fight. Because my cousin Vincent Chin did not die for nothing. My great auntie Lily Chin did not go all over the nation and speak out for nothing. And I was not born. And I was not born for nothing, she says. For Ezekiel and the people for whom he was a prophet, this vision that he had was a disruption of the narratives that they had been given, that they were conquered and defeated, that their God had no meaning or regard for their lives any longer. Speak, God says. If you would just speak, it will pull my people back together. It will knit their form in place. It will clothe them with dignity. Speak, and I will bring life. I will breathe life into them. Is there life after death? Maybe. But in our passage for today, perhaps the most important thing to remember, to claim, and to embody is that there is life after life after death. In our passage for today, the story doesn't end with death. It begins with death and ends with life and life again as the Valley of Bones, the communion of saints, renews and revives the community to push through these impossible times so that there can be life after life after death. God sees our grief, but even more than that, God dwells with us and shores us up in our grief, reminding us that the meaning of those who have passed from this realm to the next doesn't have to end with their death. The people of Israel and Judah couldn't change what happened to them, but God's message to them through Ezekiel was that they could control the narrative of who they were and what those lives meant. Who we decide to be, how we decide to live, these can determine, give shape, and carry forward the legacy of those who came before us. The story ends when God says it ends. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the communion of saints that we get to call family across space and time, who remind us that what we experience in this moment is not the fullness of what you would have for us. And so help us in those times when we feel like everything is impossible to call on the strength and witness of our ancestors, those who made it through just enough so that we could be here. Help us to remember that our lives are worth more than what we can even imagine for ourselves. Help us to see ourselves and this world through your eyes, through your purposes. And help us, even as we live in the tension of life and death in this world, to be people who proclaim your story in the midst of a death-dealing language and story that would try to keep us down, to quell our hope, 
and tell us that we are limited in who we are and what we're for. We give you thanks for this story that you have enfolded us into, and we are grateful that the story only ends when you say it ends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.